and welcome to Twig 265. Today on the show, we have Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. What's up? Mishka Katkoff, founder of Deconstructor of Fun. Thank you. I need to change my title. I really do. But thank you for the introduction. You do. And that's fine. And then me, I'm Jen Donahoe, strategic marketing consultant at Beta Hat and Jade Inferno. Howdy, everyone. So today we are talking to Mishka, who's back from Abu Dhabi and wants to share how he drank out of a gold cup or drank gold, <laughs> either one. I can't remember. I'm not going to share about any of those, but this was my, I think, fourth time in UAE. And good googly moogly. Like, it's one of those places where you go, it's like a, a lot like Singapore, but then again, not at all. So if you haven't ever traveled to UAE, my warm recommendation, I've been going previously to Dubai, but I think it's turning a little bit into like a Miami. So this time the family decided to go to a different location. It's just an hour and a half away. I love it. I love going to UAE. So what can I say? My warm recommendation. But I do have to say when we came back, the weather there was like plus 25 Celsius. Phil, what is that in, in Fahrenheit? Americans use metrics only with guns and drugs. <laughs> Nevertheless, the change in degrees was 50. Whether you're in Fahrenheit or Celsius, we went from nice warm weather to absolute freezing hell that has been Finland. So that's it. All right. Well, let's shill a little bit. I think we're all going to Abu Dhabi at some point in the future, although that's not set. But where else are you and we going in the coming months? Well, myself, I'll be the only one in London. Unfortunately, Mr. Philip Black did not come with me. So we are doing the Pocket Gamer Connect executive roundtables on 22nd of January at 5 p.m., right close to the venue. That's going to be on Monday. Actually, I'm going to shill for Eric Suford, who's doing MDM. Mobile Dev Memos, happy hour after our event, kind of starting at 6, 7, and so forth, not far away from there. So if you want to optimize, those two events are pretty awesome. And then we, we, this group, is going again back to Istanbul Game Summit on 7th and 8th. We haven't published the sign-up link, but just you can put in those into calendar. 7th is the main day. 8th is the Investor Summit. So much smaller of a scope for founders, for investors. We did it last year. About 120 people there. We're going to do it this year. Again, bigger, better, more valuable. So cool event coming up. I'm super excited to go. I've never been to Turkey. So any corrections from the group? Or are we starting off 2024 100% accurate? Well, we got it all right. <laughs> For sure. Okay, that's One episode without an accident. Let's, let's keep the streak going. <laughs> I'm sure there was an accident and we just didn't know about it. All right, so let's get into quick hits. And I'm totally joking here, but Neil Long at mobilegamer.biz, which by the way, follow him on LinkedIn. He now has a whole LinkedIn site set up for mobilegamer.biz. So he got scooped by TMZ. So TMZ, my wife actually sent me this article and it was like, so the Kim Kardashian game is shutting down? Like, you know, what world do we live in when TMZ is reporting game shutdowns? But that game is shutting down after 10 years. What an amazing run. I'm wondering if it has anything to do with EA purchasing Glue for $2.4 back in <laughs> April 2021. Oh, Seemed yeah. to be doing great until, you know, the last couple of years. But yes, RIP Kim Kardashian game, which really, I mean, set the foundation for casual games, you know, women targeted games, just kudos to those guys. 
And I think we should also just take a moment and continue to dunk on glue, especially in the wake of Taylor Swift <laughs> killing it in the last year. They had a Taylor Swift game. They made, it, it was almost like a failed social media app. This has gone, I think, forgotten, unfortunately. It was called The Swift Life. It was another great glue failure. All they had to do was clone this game, and they would have been raking in the cash, and I'm sure they would have <laughs> been hitting rock-bottom CPIs if the thing was still alive. But to miss on this opportunity, it's just still such a shame to me. And I'd love to see someone take on the Swift brand and, and do a game based around it. Ton of opportunity. The social media app didn't work out, but hopefully like some sort of click dialogue adventure game, maybe BeatStar takes this on. I don't know. There's got to be something here. Yeah. Yeah. There were folks I work with at EA who pitched internally for the Taylor Swift game many years ago and got the Heisman, you know, the big, you know, you're not going to be allowed to do this. So hindsight's 2020, but at the time, you know, they said no to that license. Didn't Glue do a Britney Spears game? They had this phase when they were like doing all the celebrity games. That was fantastic. That was a really fun times. Okay. That was a time when the CEO of Glue was more interested in hanging out in parties in LA and hanging out with these Nicki Minaj and yes. Cardi B and whatever the fuck else he was doing and making stupid games that made no sense and missed an opportunity, obviously, with Taylor Swift, I would agree. But he soon was pushed out. So He yeah. went on to do uh, a phone. Like he made like a legit, like a hardware. All right. Anyways, we're sidetracking, but that's a game on itself. That could be actually a really fun Netflix show. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So the next two I put in here to drive Chris absolutely crazy. So one, and we're going to deep dive into this a little bit later, is Netflix is considering new monetization strategies for its games as reported by the Wall Street Journal. So hold Chris. We'll get there later. And then the Apple Vision Pro is available in the U.S. on February 2nd. Pre-orders began on Friday, January 19th. We talked about the battery last time. It's good for two and a half hours. You probably can't even get through Oppenheimer if you were to watch a movie with that battery. So that's coming out. Also, a couple other things for me. The Chinese gaming regulation news. We did a deep dive last week. There's been a few updates. Primarily in the Financial Times had a really good article about the government continuing to soften its stance. The news that they broke in there were that earlier drafts didn't have the restrictions across all ages. And so when this new draft came out, it was a surprise to everybody. And I think because of that surprise, obviously they let the person leading that go. And then the government has fast-tracked consultations on revisions to this. So in the next, I think, one or two months, all of the game companies have been summoned to give their feedback. So much more to still come on that topic. And then a little later, I've got a couple of marketing updates to go over as well. Mishka, you wanted to go over investments and M&A? All right, all right, all right, all right. So US-based PC game developer GenPop Interactive has raised $9.9 .9 million out of 10 million in a funding round. The studio is currently working on its first game, a AAA shooter, whose title is yet to be disclosed. Eric Kress, any quick takes on this? Dude, the shooter genre is <laughs> in the shitter, dude. I don't know. Take Two has raises $350 million through a public add-on offering. Interesting move. I don't wonder what that is for. Also, a US-based game publisher and developer, TinyBuild, raises conditionally $12 million from the public markets. But let's talk about the more interesting investments. So Second Dinner, the makers of Marvel Snap, have raised $100 million. 
The round was led by Griffin Gaming Partners, and this popular card battler has earned over $200 million since launching in 2022. Now, I'm personally very interested in the math here because NetEase did the initial 30 million seed investment. ByteDance Newverse published the game. They have a Marvel IP, probably the most expensive one out there. And once you start subtracting these publisher fees, marketing fees, platform fees, operation fees, IP holder fees, the $200 million gets subtracted quite significantly. The $100 million, that I understand correctly, goes into building their own publishing organization because Newverse or ByteDance has, has published or informed that they will be shutting Newverse by 2023. So that is probably something they need money for. And I assume that they should be investing into developing a second game with most likely their own IP. Overall, the, uh, the $100 million moves their valuation to at least half a billion. And in order to exit profitably, the investors above would need to sell this company for billions, to be honest. Like, that would be a good goal. And that means that Secondary needs to have their own IPs. They need to have the ability to ship their own game and not through a publisher, as well as to grow their game on multiple different platforms. Chris, do you have anything to add here? I mean, doing an A round at $100 million, I mean... Crazy. Aren't VCs like looking for 10x returns? You know, that implies like a four to five billion dollar valuation for a company making 200 million in revenue, unprofitably most likely, right? So basically at two times revenue, they need to be making two to 2.5 billion with a B in order to make that kind of like 10x type return. The math doesn't even make sense, right? It doesn't make sense at all, really. Again, I think, you know, a really smart VC told me one time, it's like, they're taking A-level risk with C or D round type returns. And I'm not really sure what the thinking here is with Griffin. This actually makes far more sense for strategic, right? To invest this kind of money to get a pipeline, right? And we're going to talk about that in a little later. But I am actually going to do my interview with Matt Weibel. He just called me the other day from a Second Dinner. We actually did an interview and for some reason it didn't record. So we're going to do another one. We're going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to ask him tough questions. Of course, he probably won't answer jack shit, but I'll try to get something out of him. But I need someone in the VC community to make this make sense to me because I just don't get it. And I actually talked to a lot of these VC guys. They don't get it either, honestly. And, and to remind everyone, Marvel Snap's MAU has declined nearly every single month since it's launched. Revenue hasn't done jack shit. Everything's looking down, not up. Like you take investment when you're going through the roof, when growth metrics look insane, you need more capital to expand. And like none of the signals suggest that that's, this is the case here. It's sad. It must be their next game. Remember they're hiring for it. They're saying they want monetization. Remember Phil, you were like, look, they're hiring monetization <clears throat> people. It's not for Marvel Snap, it's for their next game. $100 million! Oh, $100 million! <laughs> okay, I mean, this is insane. 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 I okay, moving on. I agree 100%. Hopefully, the, the secondary team got their secondaries. That's it. Let's move on. So ByteDance <laughs> confirms it's on talks to sell its games business. So we know, of course, that they've divested from the games business. But they've informed publicly that Tencent is among the potential buyers as the TikTok parent reportedly lowers valuation for its studios. They actually started divesting from content, meaning studios, back in 2021 when I was having conversations with them. And that's when multiple projects got shut down. I think it was publicized as well. 
And I was kind of thinking about this divestment. I was thinking about Apple Oven as well, who has divested from games and to my knowledge have been trying to sell their portfolio and hasn't been able to do that. And it has been at least a year when they've been pushing this portfolio. So overall, it's hard to imagine that any Western company would acquire this portfolio because there's so many Chinese studios involved in this. And I wonder if Marvel Snap is part of this deal because no. they were publishing this. They weren't. No, it's not. So yeah, it's only yeah. the content studios, right? Yeah, like Mobile Legends, Bang Bang. Mm -hmm. And I think what I read is that they're canceling any game that was in development. They own a few different games. They're Chinese-based. And so it has to go to Tencent or NetEase or one of those folks. Like, there's no other Got way it. around it. And yeah, Marvel Snap was only publishing, which is why you see <laughs> crazy investment in Second <laughs> Dinner, because they own the rights to that game and their next game. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Anyway, so they lost their publisher, so they're taking everything in-house. And now another Chinese company will pick this up. But then we have been talking about the regulations that are hitting the Chinese market. And these games are primarily developed and probably targeted. For Anyways, it's an interesting scenario. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. All right, layoffs, employment, and closures. Wow. <laughs> for the second week of 2024, these are some big ones. <laughs> Unity announced that they will targeting a layoff of approximately 25% or 1,800 Oof. jobs, they said in an internal memo on Monday. After the announcement, the stock was actually up 5%. Then it was down. It went down, and now it's back up. So it's basically about flat to where it was before this announcement. The movement in the stock, I want to be clear on this, is again, this is a hedge fund hotel. So people are trading in and out of the stock constantly, and there's a lot of bull thesis on their ability to execute against a turnaround here. I am dubious at best, to be honest. This is the company's largest layoff ever and, and going to be executed by the end of March, which is actually really fast for that big of a layoff. So <sighs> this is super unfortunate, but unfortunately also inevitable, right? And I said, and I wrote this very specifically, the reason that they announced these aggressive monetization plans that upset all these people is that their core business is not financially viable or sustainable, right? And this is the main point. The company was backed into a corner because they were spending huge monies on chasing new verticals and building out their ad network and buying an ad network. Unity has been a bloated organization from the get-go and has never been profitable on the engine side. And this is the situation that they were in. So when they do these desperate moves and piss off the entire ecosystem, it's not because they're idiots. It's because they had no other choice. <laughs> you know, They had to make money. And I still think that these layoffs are likely not going to be enough because I doubt that Unity has actually had much success in improving monetization with their new policies around the engine because I don't think their audience was receptive or their customers were receptive at all. So I think my gut tells me that the company will continue to decline until it gets acquired for peanuts by someone like Microsoft or Amazon or Adobe or someone that can figure out how to like leverage that this engine and build a business with it. So that's my gut, but I don't know. Chris, do you think that as part of the layoffs, they're going to get rid of the ad group? I think it's called what? Level play. You know, sadly, they were kind of leveraging that to say, hey, you know, Unity Runtime P will waive the fee if you use our ad network. But with 1,800 jobs, like what verticals are going? That has to be a decision and some verticals are just getting eliminated. Yeah, but keep in mind that, that the Iron Source is the only profitable venture in the entire fucking organization. 
<laughs> like they're the ones that are making the money, you know, even though level play is kind of losing its ass to app loving, right? I think they're the only profitable thing that's going on there. So I actually imagine that that's not going to be impacted at all or, or very little. They're going to leave the Israelis alone. I mean, 1800 is fucking deep, you know, but a lot of it's going to be all these like pet projects that John was doing in terms of trying to get into different verticals like healthcare and movies and <laughs> that kind of nonsense, right? That never made sense to begin with. And that anybody believed that they could do that was just, I don't understand, but it's going to be a tough road, right? For these guys. I have a question for Chris, and this is from behalf of some of the listeners. So people have asked me this and I don't know what to answer it. And people are from Unity and they've asked, should I stay at Unity? These are not the people who got laid off, but they are asking what should they do? And they are always saying that they actually like very much working at Unity, that the company is very good. They like their colleagues and so forth. But they're asking, is this company going bankrupt? Should I be looking for a new job or should I take an offer on the table? Chris, what say you? I would actually probably entertain looking elsewhere. They'll reprice options. You'll get into a lower level, but like even the valuation right now doesn't make a lot of sense given their profitability profile. And if you believe that you know fingerprinting is going to have impact on their business, then even the iron source stuff is going to be less profitable going forward. So I don't see where the future of profitability is with this company. There's a big difference between fundamentals and stock in this name. That's why I keep calling it Hedge Fund Hotel, because I think people want to believe, despite the performance, that this thing is going to turn around and you're going to see a lot of movement on the stock upwards and downwards for that matter. But from a long-term fundamental perspective as an employee, like you have to ask yourself, where are the profitability centers going to be longer term in this company? That's where I'm just a little bit doubtful. They're likely going to get acquired because as soon as that stock dips, True. they're going to yep. go on sale. And mm. so if you're an employee, that's an exit for you. So that might be a reason True. to stay and to see it through. Yes. Who's going to approve an acquisition in this environment? Like, who, who, I know. Who? Yeah. It, th <laughs> this market is gone, at least until the next administration comes in. And not only that, now the UK is a veto power and it looks like that's not changing either. I don't see the out here. You're 100% right. This may go a little bit under the radar compared to a big acquisition. But this is a big acquisition. I mean, they're like, what, $16 billion or something? What's, what's the market cap now? $15 billion? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. As a standalone entity, I just, I actually don't see how this ends well for Unity. But hopefully I'm wrong. Amazon, wow. Streaming unit Twitch is set to cut 35% of its staff or 500 people. This is on top of multiple cuts they've done in the past, right? Yeah. It was 400 in March last year. Right. Okay. The business remains unprofitable nine years after Amazon acquired the company, the report said. So I actually have said this numerous times on this podcast, is that the strategic value of Twitch was to bring a different demographic to Prime. That was the fundamental reason why they acquired Switch, which I think, I believe, was successful. But there's a limit to that success. There's a saturation point in which that audience, all the people that you can convert to Prime are going to be converted, right? But Twitch standalone has been losing not tens of millions, hundreds of millions a year for decades. There is no business model. It's very similar to Discord, right? And I've been talking about Discord recently. It's like, there is no business model. They're fundamentally against advertising and they still have not implemented advertising to, I think anyway, and they've been doing other models like subscription and other things that with limited success. So it was inevitable that they would have to right-size this business because of the cost structure of it, particularly on the bandwidth and hosting and all that other stuff that they have to deal with. So anyway, this is kind of a theme, right? We're seeing in 2023 and 2024, right? These unprofitable businesses that showed either user growth or revenue growth 
work well in the go-go times, right? 2020 to 2022, but this is not going to fly in 23, 24. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's just not, right? But mark my words, <laughs> mark my words. We may get back there. You know, maybe not, maybe 2025, 2026, dude, the way things are going, we could be seeing a resurgence of the insanity of 2021. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we will see. But I'm not really too surprised that Twitch is cutting back a little bit. Eric, I wanted to ask you a question. This is something that Paul Bowen, he's an ad tech executive, having worked at Unity, Liftoff, Tapjoy. He asked this on Deconstructor of Fun Slack channel, or not asked, he was making a point. He said that app loving should acquire Twitch. And his reasoning was that Adam, CEO of AppLovin, is the best operator in the ad tech ecosystem. And he could make both Unity and Twitch profitable. He says that Twitch is significantly under-monetized, primarily due to the lack of performance ad products. And he says that Twitch is a gaming platform and AppLovin has a lot of demand they need for game advertisers. I don't disagree with what he's saying. It makes total sense strategically on paper. Like, yeah, 100%. You know, Adam's an animal, right? He could figure out how to monetize this beast, you know? The unfortunate truth, though, is that to the extent, I don't actually know anymore how much any of the founders or the original people at Twitch even exist anymore, but they don't want ads on their network, right? So, like, that kind of precludes them from actually having an ad strategy, right? Similar to Discord, right? Why doesn't Discord have ads on their network? I mean, they have a huge, huge audience, right? But they refuse to do it. You know, they want to, like, publish games and stuff on Discord or something ridiculous, but then I also think that Amazon probably is not likely a seller, right? They probably like the asset to reach that audience, but I'm not really too sure. I don't know any people actually at Twitch anymore. I used to know a lot of them because a lot of EA people went yeah, over there. Yeah, you know Bill Young though, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll get some insights there, but no, I just don't think they're for sale. I don't think Amazon's going to give it up. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity Game Framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and items frames, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. Phil, what do you got from games? 
Platinum Games pulls the plug on Apple Arcade exclusive World of Demons. This was originally published back in 2018 by DNA, which was a free-to-play game. It was inspired by Clover Studios' console hit. I didn't even know that Platinum Games had made something on mobile. But, you know, just Apple Arcade starting 2024 with another big W. <laughs> and speaking of Ws, real Ws this time, a record concurrent 33 million players logged on to Steam. That is a new high for the platform. It's a 50k bump from the prior high in March 2023. I guess a lot of people are opening up those video cards for Christmas. But wow, another big win for Steam. Hold on a minute. Why is it that there's only one third of that audience actually playing games? What the fuck are they doing on Steam, the other two-thirds of players? What is that stat? How does that even work? Are you talking about the two metrics? So Steam reports two metrics. One is the amount of people that are just on Steam. So they just have the icon in their desktop. And the other uh, that they report is in-game. So they actively have a game in focus. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. They only added the in-game metric a couple of years ago. So we don't have you know as long of an historical record for that one. But but I think like one third of the people being in game at any one time is actually incredibly impressive. No, I mean, it's a huge number, but I was assuming that they were actually doing some kind of activity. But if it's just open on the desktop, that's not as impressive, right? From the 33 million. If two thirds of them are just have it open, like I have it open right now on my desktop. So I'm included in that number, I suppose. Certainly, but directionally, it's growth. It's more yes, and more growth 100%, for, for Steam. 100%. Got it. Royal Match and Monopoly Go are battling for the top grossing spot over the last couple of weeks. M Royal Match had ended the year as no the new number one. Monopoly Go seems to be back. Last week, they've been going back and forth. This, to me, is the battle that's going to be the one to watch in 2024. Coinmaster looks like it's just been left in the dust. You know, that comparison point is gone. I mean, now we're talking about the top spot. It's going to be Royal Match or it's going to be Monopoly Go this year. Another update on Warcraft Rumble, and it looks like it's probably over. Downloads continue to decline last week. Revenue and active users did start to stabilize, but it looks like it's on a $60, $65 million run rate. That is not enough. That is not enough to keep this franchise going. I think it's going to die. I don't know if anyone has different takes here, but it looks like it was a tragic end to this. I have to say, so Eric Suford, a.k.a. Smart Eric, he has the worst picks because, like, Chris, you say that I have the worst pick. He loved Vainglory. That was his favorite game. Look what happened oh, to it. really? And then on, no, he did not. He, did, he is no the way. biggest. I don't believe no, that. I don't he, believe that. He will come back on this. He absolutely loved it. My wife worked at the company. He loved it so much. He always talked about it. It was insane. And now on the uh, Mobile Gamer Biz interview, they asked like people, like, what was the best game of the year? And <laughs> Eric Suford is telling that his favorite game was <laughs> Warcraft Rumble. So... Whatever you do, do not test with Suford. <laughs> no, no, no. But in Eric's defense, he can say it's his favorite yeah. game. That doesn't mean he thinks it's going to be successful, right? Agree. Well, he loved Vainglory. Oh, I say. There's just no way he would have assumed that <laughs> Mr. Smart Eric would have said that, that Vainglory was going to be successful. It's the game of the year. According to him, it was a game of the year. And there's nothing wrong. It's a good game. I'm just saying. He loved Vainglory, too. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think this is, game is going to be very successful. It, it looks like it's declining pretty precipitously right now yeah so i'm talking about sorry i'm talking about warcraft rumble warcraft rumble yeah no i agree i think they have major early retention issues as someone who went in and tried to play that game i'm like if they had spent more time on that early experience and really getting you to retain earlier maybe people would have held on because it does seem like a lot of people enjoy it later on but you know my advice is spend time on that new player journey one more from you phil 
Nexon, the developer of MapleStory, was fined $8.9 million by the Korean Fair Trade Commission as punishment for misleading users about loot box probabilities over the span of more than a decade <laughs> from September 2010 to March 2021. Talking about slap on the wrist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this was interesting <laughs> because they were really shady. They were really shady in what they were doing. I'm like, that's a really big fine. And they would go in and pull stuff out of a loot box and not tell you that they did that or have any disclosure. It wasn't like they like, oh, I'm changing this from 4.7 to 4.2% drop rate. They took it out completely. So that's pretty shady, I would have to say. MapleStory has made at least 10 billions. So this is like, anyways. So, okay, next topic, actually. We had the award show last show of last year and now we have the votes in so i'm just going to go through this extremely fast so the talk of the year or the topic of the year as one of the people suggested was by 46 percent thought it was unity runtime fee and the close second at 44 percent was ai so very close two topics they're out there so the percentages are we asked the audience to actually yes. go in and vote on all of these topics. We gave our own impressions on the podcast. We solicited you know, you out there to get what you think. So this is an audience reaction to our topics and the things that we put forward. Correct. Correction of the year by a landslide was <laughs> Mr. Kress saying that Microsoft <laughs> Activision is not going through. So 55% of the audience agreed that was the biggest correction followed by actually a tie, Eric's <laughs> prediction on Harry Potter and my prediction on Supercell IPO. So <laughs> a close second. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to win this this year. So number three is a company that has taken the most damage. And Embracer wins it again. So this is a repeat for Embracer. <laughs> Almost 50% of the audience agreed that this is the number one company. That, and of course, the close second is Unity uh, with almost 40% voting for Unity. With this new layoff, I think Unity would have <laughs> would have gone above Embracer yeah. if we did this a little later. <laughs> They're on a race. <laughs> the fourth category was the most disappointing game of the year. And Starfield takes the twig on this one, the golden twig, with nearly 40% of the audience agreeing that this is the most disappointing. And 26% considered the day before by Fantastic, the post-apocalyptic zombie game, <laughs> that, which launched the game and shut down the studio the following day. So uh, quite <laughs> of a disappointing, disappointing release. Number five is Mice Nuts. So best financially meaningless game. And this is actually where the votes went everywhere. But the Mice Nuts winner is Pikmin 4. How sad. This is the best performing Pikmin game by far, too. It sold the most number of units by far of the entire Pikmin franchise. And you're picking on it. How many units did it sell? Uh, a lot. I don't, <laughs> not, I don't think it did a lot. The runner-up on Mice Nuts was Final Fantasy with 25% of the audience voting for it. The most skeptical, or let's say the most questionable move of the year, the winner is Netflix. I think they won last year as well. So their questionable move was releasing 40 titles, most of which are rewarmed PC ports or failed mobile titles. The audience agrees that this is a very questionable strategy. The close second is Disney with their move into Web3. So, But that's not the only problem Disney has. Anyway, moving on to the second one, the most brilliant move and clear winner was Lego and Fortnite. So 
this combination came in right towards the end of the year and and through that showed a lot of success but not far off is savvy's acquisition of scopely and also big kudos for ea leaving fifa in the dust so those were big winners worst layoffs of course embracer but i think twitch and unity who are also on the ballot are starting the year strong and are likely going to take this one from embracer in 2024 (laughs) Last one was You Crushed It Award. So this is the best creative plus business success. And just like with all the publications, Monopoly Go got the golden twig at 45% of the audience. Oh, okay. And close second. Not a close second, but a clear second was Baldur's Gate 3. So those are the two games. And then the last question that we asked was what should we call this award show? And and really, it, it has been divided in between two. So the Deconstructor of Fun Awards and then the Golden Twigs. So I don't know. We're figured out. We'll probably keep both. And the winner just gets a Golden Twig. We need to make like these sort of physical objects that we can send on a pedestal for a company that has taken... It says most damage 2024. You can put it in your office or throw it into the bin. But just please record on LinkedIn as you do that. <laughs> What are we going to send that to Lars at Embracer? Yeah. You know, that would be amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. So they get a tree dipped in gold. Uh, they can put it next to the other ones that they've earned throughout the years. <laughs> yeah, you can put it next to his three Ferraris and two Lamborghinis from doing all his deals. That would be the Lance Armstrong flex where he got caught on cheating and he has all the shirts. Anyways. <laughs> Jen, please take yeah, over. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. Wrapping up our awards. I have had a request that we do predictions. We did not do Deconstructor of Fun predictions. So maybe that comes up in the next couple of episodes where we do that. They are coming. So what we are going to release in a week is something that Phil requested in the last episode. And I actually wrote those already last year. And that is the accountability on the previous predictions. So there's actually a point system that we have given to the predictions we did last year and how well they did. So we're going to release that first. And then we're going to release our upcoming predictions so that you can see our track record. And we're not just making new predictions and hoping that one sticks and then applauding and patting ourselves on the back. Okay, so moving on. In a new segment I'm going to call, Phil is going to yell at me for talking about marketing stuff. I have two quick topics that I want folks to just be aware of. So I just... It's helpful to make sure that even if you're not a marketing person, you're aware of these things so that you can go to your marketing team and being like, are we on top of this? So the first one is kind of like a public service announcement about an article that came out about how you communicate if you have in-game purchases or loot boxes in your game. So there was a loot box research lawyer, Leon Zhao, He exposed the widespread violation of UK and EU regulations in the realm of loot box advertising and social media. Zhao's latest findings reveal a concerning trend wherein ads for games consistently fall short of meeting the stipulated disclosure requirements regarding the presence of loot boxes or any in-game purchases. So the gist here is when you do your UA ads, EU and UK regulations require that you put a notice on the ad that says your game has this. And he found that basically only about between 7 and 11% did this. And so these are requirements. The only one who's actually doing it okay is EA with Apex Legends is the one he said. And this was their mobile ads, RIP, Apex Legends. In fact, he said that Activision, Blizzard, Sony, Take-Two, Warner Brothers, Ubisoft all failed to do this. So usually big companies are really good at this. But in this case, they didn't. So also don't forget about age ratings, ESRB, PEGI, 
you kind of need to put this stuff on your ads. So if you're marketing, UA, creative, just, just make sure you kind of check the box on this. So my second topic really quickly is connected TV or CTV. So Amazon Prime Video, I've been a Prime member for, I don't even know, since the beginning of time. And I've enjoyed free Amazon Prime. I've loved Lord of the Rings. I love all of these shows. Well, they're gonna launch their new ad-supported network at the end of January. And the CPMs, which is the cost to reach a thousand players, is in the low $30 range. So this is news from Adweek. So this CPM is very, very low, especially against the competitive set around Netflix and Disney, who when they launched were 50 to $60 CPMs. They're down a little bit more now because Netflix actually hasn't been doing as well. So they're in the 39 to 45% range. And so here's kind of what's sneaky with Amazon. Amazon is going to turn on ads for everyone. Everyone is going to get hit with an ad. You have to then go in and spend $2.99 monthly to turn it off. So if you would like to take advantage of this hit of about 289 million people globally who watch Amazon ads, go buy some ads for a relatively low hidden audience until they go ahead and turn that off. So just another little tidbit for you to go to your marketing folks and be like, hey, can we leverage a couple of these things? So that's my segment. So next, let's talk about Clash Mini. I think there was a great deconstruction that Supercell actually asked you for. This was like, that is so cool. First of all, that is so cool that they came out and said, can't wait to see the deconstructor or fun deconstruction on this. So talk about it, Mishka. Yeah, so I think Supercell posted this on LinkedIn in December last year with launching this update and basically tagging Deconstructor of Fun to do a deconstruction. We have done two already before and Javier has done both of them. This game has been in Southland for two years and this is the third one from Javier and I don't think he's writing anymore about Clash Mini. So kudos for him for doing these. This one is 35 pages so I think he's written like close to 70 pages about Clash Mini already. He's a real stud when it comes to this and I'm going to piggyback a lot from his analysis. So Clash Mini, if you haven't played it, is auto chess game, pretty much like team fight tactics, which has really been the only successful auto chess game. And it has been in soft launch. It came from Supercell. It had been in soft launch for two years, and it's really struggling to get the metrics worthy of a global launch, despite multiple incremental updates. This game has been developed by Supercell's Shanghai studio that was established in 2018. And it looks very polished, just like you would expect from any Supercell game, especially one that has been in soft launch for two years. And it has changed significantly over the time of the soft launch with the goal of improving the metrics. And the changes have been quite significant. They have changed the progression systems, removing basically the gameplay functionality from progression before you were getting like tougher units. But now it's all Instead of stat increments, it's all about cosmetics and they increase the collector level that unlocks units and rewards and very much similar than Marvel Snap, including additional skills for the heroes. There's new gacha boxes. In terms of gameplay, the core rules have been changing quite significantly with the goal of adding depth and bringing it closer to the standard auto chest formula. There was a thing where you could do before when this game originally launched and I played it, and that was you could reposition your units during the sort of a lull phase in the auto chest, and it was driving me crazy, actually the reason why I quit the game, but they have removed that, and so there's a lot more predictability. They've added drafting rules, so really piggybacking on that sort of a deck building component, and they have just recently introduced classes, which is bonuses when you do deploy similar style of a units, like if you were to 
deploy one skeleton and another skeleton, they get a bonus, and then there's a third and a fourth and so forth. So overall, the changes have been oriented to do two things, or actually three. One is increase engagement by adding gameplay depth. Number two is improve monetization by putting more focus on loot boxes for the acquisition of new units. And number three is aiming to make players diversify their units through modes where they play with the entire collection and more incentive to acquire and upgrade all units. So in terms of results, the revenue metrics of this game have had a very modest positive impact compared to past updates. And it still seems below the values worthy of a global launch when compared to Marvel Snap, when compared to Clash Royale. Well, that's an old game, but even compared to Teamfight Tactics. And when I was looking at this data, I was kind of wondering why didn't they launch this new update in new markets with fresh players rather than showing kind of to the uh, the same players. I would kind of weird. They are already out in 15 different countries and Personally, if this is the last big update they want to do, why don't they just use Google Play Beta and launch this game in the US and see how it really functions with the primary audience? Anyway, as I said, the KPIs are significantly below the likes of Marvel Snap and the Clash Royale and category leader TFT. The update has received also a very mixed reaction in social networks. Some players are praising the gameplay edition and the new content, but kind of disliking the strong focus on the loot boxes. Overall, when Javier does his 35 pages long analysis, his assessment is pessimistic. He points out that the thesis behind Clash Mini was that it was possible to create a more accessible mass appeal auto chest that could bring the genre to new heights. However, there are no signs that Mini being able to achieve an untapped potential in the genre. My personal opinion is that this game is not nearly as deep as Teamfight Tactics, where the meta is truly so deep that it has created a strong community. Like you can play the game, but you can't win a single match unless you go to one of those TFT comps online pages where I constantly go before I play, see kind of what's happening and so forth. And I love the updates in TFT because the meta is so deep. What they do is every season, they just change the meta by adding and removing new units, new classes, or new heroes, new champions, new classes. And the game feels incredibly fresh despite being kind of the same as it is. I was personally not able to play Clash Mini after any update more than a few dates. It gets very repetitive to me, and I'm constantly asking, why would anyone play a turn-based Clash Royale? I love Clash Royale. This is This feels weaker than that. Nevertheless, I love the idea that you could make an auto chest that would be good for large audiences. But I think, you know, gun to my head, I don't think this game is going to launch. I think Supercell Shanghai spent arguably too much time on testing this thesis that honestly could have been proven wrong quite early. Yet again, Marvel Snap has done extremely well. And that is also a quite simplistic game compared to, let's say, Hearthstone. But nevertheless, I would still say that this game is probably not going to see a global launch. But I think it's very well done. I think the team has executed really well in building a game in a very unique art style, in very accessible approach. And just overall, it's a truly quality game. And I would see that this type of a same art style and same approach could maybe work in a game that piggybacks on that Fall Guys, sort of a mass brawler, whatever you call it, mass competition type of a game. I think it could be really fun with these units and, and kind of like Mario Kart meets I don't know, some kind of an action game. But that's my take. But most importantly, that's Javier Barnes' take. Phil? 
No, I think this was another great piece by Javier, and I'm with both of you. I don't think this game is going to make it out the door. In fact, I think this update is a swan song. I think they had a bunch of content locked up in a warehouse, and they're like, fuck it, let's get everything we got. Let's just release it and see if there's an uptick. They've done this before, and to their credit, like this is the right way to see whether or not there's anything left in the tank is just put it all out there. Like It was unpolished. It definitely wasn't up to Supercell standards, even some of the UX stuff, which drove me nuts. You know, you would go in and you'd upgrade these units and then your collector level would increase, but you'd have to watch these like really slow animation. Just, it's not usual Supercell quality. You were, it was, it was clear they were trying to get something out the door quicker rather than later. And I, I still think that was the right strategy. And, you know, to Javier's point, they were never able to really crack this genre. No one has been able to crack this genre. It was the flash in the pan. It was it was the dream that never really panned out. Teamfight Tactics never really took off in the West. Dota Underlords died very quickly. The original Auto Chess team tried to do something on mobile, never really got anywhere. The original Auto Chess on PC never really went anywhere. No one has been able to figure out, A, how to make this gameplay accessible, and B, how to monetize this game. And on the accessibility point, Supercell has actually made this game less and less accessible, in my opinion, and they've still failed to explain a lot of the core rules. So you'd have these clash abilities, which were a really great design innovation. So at the beginning of a match, an ability would automatically trigger. The problem is you really don't know the stack or how the abilities will resolve in what order. And so that makes planning really hard. And the core part of auto chess is running a simulation in your head before the match has started and trying to figure out how far you can get into that simulation and predict how combat is going to resolve that is the fun of this genre is trying to run that simulation trying to do all that theory crafting which is also extremely common in ccgs they did amazing things like magic tiles which tft should absolutely copy so if you think about a chessboard they would take one of those tiles and they would have special modifiers it was such a duh obvious thing you should do that only someone like supercell could see but again it, like it wasn't enough to get off to get over the hump I was actually on an auto chess game a really long time ago. Well, I would say last year. We were trying to take squad RPGs and integrate auto chess mechanics, which solves a lot of the monetization and progression problems. Because auto chess has never really had that out of round progression. How do I upgrade my units and make them more powerful? When I go into a match, I'm even, I'm even more powerful than I was beforehand. I still think there's something to integrating the auto chess style combat with more traditional squad RPG mechanics. Supercell isn't going to be the company to, to take a shot at that, but I'd really love to see you know a Marvel Strike Force or a Galaxy of Heroes spend a little bit of time, do perhaps a live ops auto chess mode and see whether or not they can get this off the ground. I still think there's something to PVE and auto chess that Supercell never really took that far, but I'd love to see someone take a shot at it. We did not succeed on my title, but I'd love to see someone take another try. I'd be curious to hear from Jen, because Jen, you've been, you launched TFT, right? Yeah, I launched TFT Mobile. So it was live on PC first. And then I came in, I was a marketing lead on TFT for a few years. So we launched it on mobile and took it through, I think set five or set six is before I left at Riot. So a couple things on this genre is, so number one is TFT is a really powerful, engaging game in the West. Predominantly more on PC than on mobile, it's still okay on mobile. Now where it's absolutely kicking ass on revenue is in China. And the reason we talked about it last week is in China, the expectation of League of Legends, and by the way, it's called Fight for the Golden Spatula, on the mobile game. So it's still TFT on PC, but for mobile, it, it's called something different. It's a top 10 revenue driving game in China, like every month. 
And the reason is loot boxes is because in that region, they have found a way to monetize the genre for the region that is okay with that monetization system. We could not really figure it out in the West. How do you add monetization? We did have like a little bit of a loot box system, but it was all around the customization. It was your little legend. We introduced chibi little legends, which are like cute little League of Legends characters as part of the game. But from a monetization, it's, it's been a really difficult game to monetize in the West, for sure. From a gameplay perspective, it's interesting you're talking about the sets and the meta. We actually did mid-set releases where we would switch up the meta mid-set. So at the time, every set was four months. Halfway through, everyone learned the meta because you all have you know second screen. You've got your tip sheet up. And so we actually had to mix up the meta every kind of month and a half because it becomes stale very, very quickly. So the set idea actually came from Hearthstone, which is basically auto chess is a another way to engage in a CCG. It's deck building just ha happens to have like an action component to it. So it's still the same kind of play pattern. It's still the same motivations. It's a very, very similar consumer. And with auto chess, there can be, as I call it like Highlander, you can play only one of these things because it is so difficult to keep all of this information in your mind. And we would lose people set to set because having to come back in, learn a whole new set, learn all the new characters, learn the new meta was like a huge challenge. So the team's actually done really well in figuring that out lately. I think set nine and 10 have seen an increase in players, an increase in engagement from what I've heard from my Riot friends. So anyway, sorry, like long diatribe on TFT. You know, Phil, I, I, I'm almost like give up on auto chess. I think so many people have tried, but yeah, maybe if someone's got squad RPG meets auto chess, that might work, but it's just a genre that is not a Western genre, I don't think. Yeah. It was 2019 when, when that came in and it was the first mobile, it was second game Riot ever shipped. And it was like six months from when these auto chess games were like a hot thing on Twitch. And six months later, it was already Riot had shipped it on PC. It was. Yeah. I think I've told this story before, but the folks were at Riot. We were losing them to playing Dota Auto Chess. And we're like, guys, like we need you to work on this other thing. And they're like, we're too busy playing this. And so one of the guys, Dax, and I'm sure it was a bunch of different people, but Dax went on to do Odyssey. And so they were like, well, why don't we just build this really quick? Why don't we just do this with our League of Legends library of characters? And so I think it was about five months from that aha moment that they shipped it on PC. And then it was like five or six months later that we shipped it on mobile. And so we shipped Insane. it on mobile in March, 2020, during the first week of lockdown, which was like super crazy. It was Riot's first ever mobile game launch. I had to set up mobile publishing at Riot. No one had ever done UA. No one had ever like put a game on the store before. It, it was like really, really interesting to see how we would mobilize an entire company that had only ever done one game, only ever done PC, and to figure out how to launch something on mobile was not easy. Let's just say that. But we did it. We did it. And it did well. I mean, we launched it to like number one in Korea in a, a number one app, not even game. Like, I don't even know if Monopoly Go can say this, that for TFT, we launched it to be the number one app on the app stores the week that it launched in like, I don't know, five countries, Korea being like the biggest one of them. So proud mama. I love and hate that game, both. <laughs> Every season, love and hate it at the same I, time. I hear you, especially if you, <laughs> especially if you do ranked play. 
Yes. I, the highest I ever got to gold, gold rank. And I was so proud of myself. I was like, yay, I hit gold. <laughs> All right. So let's move on. Enough TFT talk. Thank you for bringing up a proud moment in my career. I loved working on that with those folks. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Netflix considers ways to make money. This is an exclusive article that was from the Wall Street Journal. They mentioned that executives at the streaming giant have had discussions in recent months about how to generate revenue from some of its games. Wow, imagine that. Some of the ideas that have been discussed include in-app purchases, charging more for sophisticated games it is developing, or giving subscribers its newer ad-supported tier access to games with ads in them. We want to have differentiated gaming experience, and part of that is giving game creators the ability to think about building games purely from the perspective of player enjoyment and not having to worry about other forms of monetization, whether it be ads or in-game payment. Netflix co-chief entertainment executive Greg Peters told investors in April, looks like he's eating those words, as of October, fewer than 1% of Netflix's global subscribers were playing games daily, according to Aptopia estimates. 
Analysts have also estimated that Netflix has spent $1 billion on buying game studios and building the business, and the company spends about $17 billion a year on shows and movies. That's actually a lot more than I expected. If they're spending a billion dollars on games with that sort of return and only $17 million on content, like this is actually a significant part of their P&L. Overall, Netflix games were downloaded 81.2 million times globally last year, a nearly threefold increase from 28.7 million downloads that it had in 2022. Looks like you can have those multiples when you have such low energy values, according to Sensor Tower. Eric, are we ready to dunk on Netflix once again? I don't know what's going on at Netflix because, again, this is not what Verdue was setting up, right? It was the, actually the opposite. He basically wanted to set up a gaming service that removed the shackles of monetization design from the creative process. And so none of this really makes sense to me as to kind of where their direction they seem to be going. Now, having said that, this article is super thin, right? I mean, it is the Wall Street Journal, right? It is legit and it's sourced. But the article is really talking about strategic discussions, not necessarily plans of implementation, right? So the ad stuff makes sense to me, like that actually foots, but not the in-app purchase stuff. The in-app purchase was specifically not what was supposed to happen with this service and what made it unique. And again, as I said many times in the podcast is that I think like the, the ability for the creatives to create things that are engaging, not necessarily nickel and diming them constantly. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping this is not true because I don't think this would be successful. Yeah, if they do that. Chris, I agree that when I read this article, it it felt a little bit clickbaity, and like it was targeted at you to get you going, <laughs> because there wasn't really a lot of data that was in there that was any different than what we've seen before. We've seen this one percent of the audience plays games. Like it wasn't really anything new, and it was like, you know, people that aren't really on the game team talking about strategies about how they might make money on the games. But let me just kind of sum up. You know, first of all, to your comment last week about putting ads in a premium or a subscription-oriented business, I think your quote was, fuck you, don't mess with my premium game experience. And I think that they're going to need to do some significant consumer qual and quant research to really understand the audience motivations and their purchase intent around being a part of a subscription product where they are now served ads especially if they have chosen not to be part of the ad-supported tier. I get that Netflix has you know, given an, a lower cost ad supported tier, but now you have to spend even more money to get the games division. You know, that feels like a fuck you Netflix for a number of consumers who are looking for that added value when Netflix has recently raised prices. You can't share your password. You now want to make me pay to see ads and to game experiences with IAP potentially in them. It just felt like exactly what you were saying last week for the situation with premium games on console. Yeah, this was an interesting article. I'm going to put in my conspiracy theory <laughs> tinfoil hat on <laughs> because this is something weird. So to me, this reads like internal politics, like kind of like Pat McAfee ESPN drama that is happening right now. I might totally be wrong. I most likely am wrong, but it feels like someone at Netflix is leaking with a conflicting story about what Verdue has been chasing. Someone wants Verdue's role and is pushing a different strategy outside through an external media. I'm sure they're having these conversations internally, but when you push it through an external, it just has more power. 
either or, let's be clear, about the facts regarding Netflix games. They've spent $1,000 million on building games business that doesn't generate revenue, nor has any meaningful interest from their audience. They have launched tens, mostly of PC ports or sort of a failed mobile free-to-play games without monetization mechanics on their platform, 40 games in 2023 alone, and planning to go up to 90 games in 2024. They've acquired a handful of mid-sized studios. They are building a AAA shooter out of LA just to piss Cress off. <laughs> just as a bonus <laughs> on everything. they just like, hey, and also a AAA shooter. They've hired senior talent paying far above what anyone else in the market is paying, which is, I guess, a positive thing. So I don't know how to spin this story in a positive way. And if I could, I'd be one of the high-paid executives at Netflix, of course. But I think they have two options in 2024. One is retreat, and the other one is pivot. So ByteDance retreated. They exited games. For Netflix, that would be admitting failure, and that would probably not be the route. So what's more likely for them is to refocus, use their internal resources and licensing to support key franchising, meaning less people, less games, and more deliberate games. Or they can just kind of run this inferior version of Apple Arcade, and this option will also lead to much smaller internal team and even closure of acquired studios where they are basically just launching some old small games. Either or, I'm very puzzled by all of this. I have huge admiration towards Netflix as a company. One of my favorite leadership management books is No Rules Rules. And also my friends who work at the company, not Phil's friends, my friends. Yeah, your 500K, $1 million friends. (laughs) They absolutely love it. Like they love the culture. They love this place. Like they tell only great things about Netflix. So I would really wish that Verdu would come out and communicate a strategy that we can all get behind with. No more visions. We don't need to know the why. We need to know the how. I think we still need to know the why. (laughs) Yeah, I think we still need to know the why as well. (laughs) The why is we want to be the premier destination for games or something like that. That's their why. That's their high vision. So flimsy. I know. It's so flimsy. It's not a strategy. And it's just as flimsy as this comment that drives me up the walls that I hear from people that monetization is the shackle. Like if you're starting from such a stupid precept, you're going to get stupid results. Monetization is not a shackle. It's liberation. It is liberation to build the games we want to build, to build the live services you want to build, to build the products that you want to build over years. Monetization is not the enemy. Monetization is the friend. And subscriptions are fundamentally opposed to everything that we've learned about games in the last 20 years. I just don't understand why it is so hard for these executives to do a little bit of research, a little bit of observation, and at least come up with a reason why all these other streaming and subscription services have failed over and over and over and over again. EA's uh, service, subscription service, has completely failed. Microsoft's Game Pass service is stalling out. We've seen, uh, what is it, OnLive? That didn't last very long. No one seems to remember that one. We've seen subscriptions completely decline as a monetization mechanic, even in like particular game subscriptions like World of Warcraft is one of the last remaining ones to generate any sort of revenue. Even then, they've shifted to MTX. I'm sure they're making more money off MTX than they are subscriptions. And so everyone keeps trying to fight gravity, despite the fact that the lesson over the last 20 years is that ARPU is increasing. Like This is the story of games, is that we figured out how to increase the tail of engagement. And we've done that with PvP, with almost the endless form of content that PvP is. You get to consume the meta. That is what gets us hundreds of thousands of hours of playing Call of Duty. And we figured out how to correlate that 
hours of and thousands of hours of gameplay with monetization mechanics that let us capture some of that value, capture some of that tail, form a correlation between that 1,000 hours of gameplay and some sort of revenue over a time period rather than the fixed cost monetization model you see in other entertainment sources. This is the defining characteristic of games. This is what separates us from all other forms of entertainment. Stop trying to fight fucking gravity with subscriptions. And Apple Arcade, by the way, that's the <laughs> other one that's, that's tanked here. Stop fucking trying to do this. IEP is the revolution. Monetization is the revolution. Start with that precept, and I think you'll get far better results. Okay. See, the problem with this whole argument is I 100% agree with you. As a capitalist, as a pure capitalist, I totally agree with what you're saying, 100%. You are optimizing these products to extract as much revenue as possible and engagement as well by catering to those people that are super engaged with these creative but but it's not extracting right it, 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 extracting assumes you're removing things it's about correlating the value that games generate for players with any sort of ltv tail it's making sure that there's correlation between engagement and monetization if you watch star wars a million times you only pay the 20 dollars fixed fee for the dvd or the rental whatever it may be there's no monetization tail this is where games are different you can have a monetization tail you can correlate those two things well actually that's a good example so like what the vision, I thought anyway, for Netflix was, is to create content like a movie, you know, in gaming. So that you have like a 30 to 60 day engagement max type thing. And you don't have to worry about long-term retention, you know, day 60, day 180 and constant content and milking people for money constantly as well, right? This is more of a creative freedom, not a financial freedom. But by offering a creative freedom, that is offer financial freedom, right? So, you know, the purists out there that want to build games for the creative process, you know, something like Alan Wake, for instance, which sold like shit, by the way, which is remarkable to me. Like, that is an amazing creative game. And it's getting game of the years, right? That's the type of game and experience people want to build without having to worry about monetization, you know? So I do agree with you. I mean, I, I don't think these models are bad necessarily. I think they do optimize against the audience, but I thought Netflix was doing something different. See, the other thing that's bothering me is that we haven't even had any time, dude. This isn't even, they barely even started, right? Like, give them some time to actually create some of these experiences, not this tchotchke bullshit like remastering PC games on mobile, right? We haven't even seen any real creative experiences that they've been creating with their own studios. So, I don't know. I'm giving them some benefit of the doubt and some time, but I think Verdue needs to get out there and and kind of like nip this shit in the bud and let us know what the fuck is going on. Even though I'm Jewish, I felt like I was at church. I was like, hallelujah, <laughs> Phil, preach the choir, make it happen. Yeah, really I need to defend the monetization folks. They have as much creative integrity, if not more than all of the pure design storytellers. I won't let them take that mantle. Like monetization is just as beautiful and creative and as challenging and as wonderful as pure design that doesn't have monetization involved in it. I'm going to call bullshit you're, on you're that. Out your, I, you're out of your fucking you were just mind. Saying, what you are out we just talked about Supercell not being able to solve the problem of monetization in these games. Like that's where all the fun and exciting challenges of games are. It's, a, it's in monetization. That's, that's two like different the things. the game making. Yeah, it's two that different things. That absolutely is the game making. Wedding monetization into the game. That is game making. What are you talking about? You the, can't. The monetization people are not the suits. You have to have a fun experience that is highly creative, that makes you want to come and play first. 
then yes no you, but the no. Hard no. monetization no. starts Actually, no. at ground <laughs> zero this has been the beauty of monetization clash of clans's beauty is that it's got a consumable loop intimately tied into monetization that is the beauty of that game that's the beauty of 4xp shields <laughs> I, again as a capitalist i agree with you but that's not what a lot of people want or certainly the creators want. They want to create creations and stories no, and experiences. I think that's what, and, the boomers do. The and boomers exploration. Do, the boomers do because they still look at monetization as something that the suits demand money for. And that model has been outdated and it's been outdated for a long time. And they are changing. I saw it in EA. I saw it in these HD studios. They understand it now. They get live service. They understand monetization. But the tides have already changed. Like this battle has gotten easier and easier for me to fight over the years. They get it. It has to be there day one. I, I'm just, I'm just floored. Yeah. 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 Me as well. It's gross. It's a casino thing, right? Yeah. Let's build a better mousetrap and casino for all these games. And it's a little bit sickening, but he's right though. Though The only thing is that the problem is that he's fucking dead right. Because the fact is those are the games that are successful. There's no creative vision towards making a better gotcha mechanic, right? There absolutely is. What do you think the collector revolution that we were just talking about in Warcraft Rumble, in Marvel Snap, in Clash Mini, the whole collector level system is a beautiful design that's intimately related to, to, to gotcha systems about content diversity. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? That's like economic yeah. creativity. That's not game creativity Correct. or creation game yeah, creativity. Yeah, it's called systems design. It's one of the booming job categories of game design. What are you talking about? Have you have you worked in these studios? I have, and I'm, I actually was... <laughs> part of the book anyway i understand what you're saying but that's not what netflix is supposedly going after and that's certainly not what i think customers hope for anyway they're hoping to remove these type of monetization Correct. like these predatory practices as creative as they may be to your point no they, no they redditors want, want that redditors who are keyboard warriors want that that's not what they actually do that's not what they actually play and that's certainly not what they spend money on but it's only what keyboard warriors decide netflix has what they said one percent of their dau is playing these games yeah i don't I just don't know what you're talking about look at the steam top 10 list it's live service games it's live service games with mtx i'm not arguing with that point i'm just saying all right next week what do we got? Next week, we got data AI's market data. We have some custom data about mobile market overall. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And new zoo podcast also coming in next or this month. Just to piss off Chris, we're going to do more new zoo podcasts. All right, everybody. All right. See you next week. Bye. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening. <laughs>